There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business Today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, I have this unusual belief. I think as human beings, we tell stories. Stories about who we are, about what we've learned, about what we do, about what we believe, about what we're not. And I think we're actually fascinated with each other's stories. I know from my original research of when I was doing my PhD on a particular genre of stories that we remember stories rather than we remember facts. In fact, I honestly think we're hardwired as human beings to listen and to respond to stories because the stories carry the emotion. Now, if you think about TED Talks, they're all based on telling a compelling story. That's where the best ones start. Yet, when we come to business, we don't systematically think about how stories can impact work and engagement and culture and leadership and just about everything that matters on the human dimension. So what I want to talk to you today is about how do we use stories in a more significant way um, to build trust, to affirm our leadership, to create innovation, and whatever else comes up along the way. My guest today is Mitch Didkoff. Mitch is um, co-founder and president of Idea Champions, which is an innovation company. But Mitch's work is all about helping forward-thinking organizations get out of the box and raise the bar on innovation. He's been doing that since 1987. And he believes that unless individuals in an organization are willing and able to open their minds to bold new possibilities, then innovation doesn't happen. And that means people need to be engaged, on fire, ready to see the world in a different way. Mitch is the author of two award-winning books, one, Awake at the Wheel, Getting Your Ideas Rolling in an Uphill World, and most recently, soon to be released, Storytelling for the Revolution. So, Mitch, it's a pleasure to have you back. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. I'm thrilled to be back. Yes, and I should say that Mitch is the only person that has the distinction of having been a guest now for the third time for me. But that tells you something about how wonderful I think Mitch's ideas are. So at any rate, at work, what are the relevant stories? The relevant stories at work. Uh, so much to say about that. I'll, I'll keep it simple. To begin with, stories that connect people, that build community, that dissolve boundaries. Uh, insofar as storytelling being the most direct, effective, and powerful, powerfully simple way for people to find out who that other person is, their values, their mindset, where they're coming from. So first of all, stories is a way that people to connect. Secondly, why stories in the workplace? Stories give shape to vague, sometimes hyperbolic, values, missions, and visions, and principles, fairy dust, stuff that leaders talk about vaguely and generically. The stories give them form. It makes the theoretical practical kinetic, so it gives shape to the vagaries of life and makes it real. It communicates stories, that is, 
what I call, and many people beyond me call, tacit wisdom, meaning a way to communicate something that is hard to describe in words, hard to communicate as a set of instructions or a PowerPoint show or a spreadsheet or even a best practice. So stories give shape and make real the hard-to-define, hard-to-communicate essences of life. And I'm talking about stuff like courage, creativity, intuition, trust, um, perseverance, these kinds of things that could easily become um, slogans that are used in a mission or a vision statement but do not become real for people. But when they hear it as a story, when they hear the example of the vagary given as a real story, they, they remember it, and when it's a really powerful one, they tell it so it goes viral. Those are, right. those are a few of the reasons why stories are relevant just, in the workplace. Just a few to start with. Plus, uh, you know, I think stories carry the emotion, and the emotion is where we really, truly connect with each other as human beings. It's probably also where that sense of walk the talk becomes to be real when the stories start to match the talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Too many leaders and, and not just leaders, but managers and, and colleagues, uh, as uh, pressed as they are for time, have a tendency to go for down and dirty in the shortcut. And what gets left behind is feeling. What gets left behind is the person with whom they are collaborating. Things become transactional and checklists. But what about the spirit of the workplace, what you call emotion? What about the feeling behind the work? How do you activate that? How do you communicate that? Well, stories are one very simple and one very powerful way to communicate emotion that moves people to action, not just to think, but to feel. So, Mitch, it strikes me that the stuff that you're talking about, move people to feel, to think, to connect, to understand all of this um, words that we don't know what they mean, like courage and perseverance and all that jazz. And now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Got too many phrases in there. Um that stories should carry some of that excitement and energy and renewal. Is that true? It's absolutely true, especially when the stories that are told are personal stories. There's, there's two kinds of stories. There's stories that are called springboard stories, which are really the retelling of classic tales. It could be from any great tradition, any great spiritual path. It could be from any of the great entrepreneurs or the visionaries who have come before, the Steve Jobs, the Richard Bransons, and so forth. And those are valuable because uh, they carry with it an energy that people can relate to. But what I think is even more important these days and what my book is largely about is the experience of people identifying, owning, sourcing, learning how to tell their own stories of what I call memorable moments of truth, moments of insight, moments of breakthrough, the aha moments that can be communicated, sometimes in two minutes or less, via story, so that it creates a bridge from one person to the other person. Neuroscientists have studied this exhaustively, and they've discovered something completely fascinating. When they hook electrodes up, 
to the mind of the speaker, to the brain of the speaker, that is, and the brain of the listeners, they find that when the speaker is telling a story, the parts of the brain in the speaker's, in the speaker's brain that lights up, that is equivalent and, and related to different areas of the brain that is the seat of that emotion or feeling, it's the exact same part of the brain that lights up in the mind or the brain of the listener. So there is this transference, not just of information, but of experience. And that's why people love to hear stories, because they get it in a heartbeat. Wow. So the speaker is telling a story. There is emotion in it. There's particular parts of their brain that are lit up when we start to measure it around that emotion. And if I am listening, I get the same emotional highlights physiologically in my brain as the listener, as the speaker does in telling. That's right. And that's why, as as, as you started the interview, you mentioned the the commonality of, of, of so many TED speakers and, and good orators beginning the story because they know this, whether they know the science of it or they just know it intuitively. They know that they can make a connection with their audience as quickly as possible when they tell a story. And the feeling, the, the trust, and the uh, enchantment that follows after the story has been told is palpable. And then the rest of what they have to say is in the context of the trust and the listening that has been established via the telling of the story. It's an interesting statement that if we wanted to, if we told stories, we'd get more listening. Um, let me go back just to make a comment. I do a lot of panel discussions on variety of purposes, and I know that people come to impart wisdom. And many times mm. it's a very senior person, and they have great experiences to share, and everybody's keen to hear their experiences and, you know, what's their wisdom. When you listen to the wisdom, it's often not to belittle any of their successes, but the wisdom that they say is always platitudes. Um, things exactly. like, you know, you, you won't ever get everything right, or you have to be passionate about what you do. And, you know, everybody's heard those before, and they just don't carry anything. But the moment I get Zero. them to tell a story about a time they renewed their passion or a time they made a mistake, or a time they took a risk. Those are memorable, and they just get the audience excited. So this is exactly what you're saying. Stories. Totally. And In fact, there are clients of mine who I haven't seen in 15 or 20 years, and I, I meet them at a conference or at some reception. They seek me out, and the first thing they say to me is, I remember this story you told about X. They don't say, I remember your PowerPoint show, or I remember the bagels or the muffins. I remember the story because the story sticks and the story carries and conveys a meaning that the listener, that person in that conference or that reception is still drinking from that fountain. That's how powerful a well-told story is. Yeah, I, I remember that from my MBA days. We've talked about this in the past, Mitch, that my students used to come back, you know, years later. And what they'd say is, I remember that story you told. And, you know, on the one hand, it makes you mad because you spend all this time trying to convey some clever ideas and clever insights and principles and frameworks. And all they remember is the stories. And I finally decided the heck with it. I'll just make the message embedded in the story. And my teaching ratings went up dramatically. Funny thing about that. If you if you look at some of the research that's been done by psychologists and sociologists who are studying 
human communication, they have come up with a number, and I, again, I'm sure it's uh, subject to debate, but it, it it's, was a pretty credible resource uh, in what I was exposed to. 65% of our conversations are made up of stories. If you deconstruct what two friends over coffee or over dinner or at a party or at a meeting, what's going on, it's the telling of stories. That's the construct. That's the shape that the communication is taking. We all know what it is intuitively, even if we haven't studied it. It's got a beginning. It's got a middle. It's got an end. It's got a hero on a quest. It's got an obstacle that has to be overcome, and it's got a resolution. That's the end game. That's the goal. We grew up on fairy tales. We know it in our bones. And as we age and enter into the business world, we take the best of what we learn in fairy tales. And if you're a spiritual person, the best of what you've learned from the Bible or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita. And that form of story conveys the message you have to deliver. That's, which is why you just said that people see you after years, they, they remember your story. Right. Right. It also strikes me, though, the more personal it is, as opposed to third party, the better. Is that true? It is totally true. But this is the interesting paradox, because to tell a personal story for some people is a risk. They would have to walk the plank of what they think vulnerable is. They have to expose or reveal something about themselves. And indeed, often a flaw was something that is not perfect. Those are the really good stories. But too often people in leadership positions, uh, either they've been conditioned this way or they've assumed it, think that they have to put out a persona of perfection. And so to tell a story that is uh, at, at all revealing of them as a human being that may indicate some of their personality or style or experience which is less than perfect, they're unwilling to do. But when they do, and they're able to get to the end of the story and, and express and explain what that learning was based on that quote-unquote failure or rite of passage, they've won over the audience and they've gained massive trust in the people that are listening. Okay. So let's talk for a minute. I want to get an example in a second, but before we go there, I want to talk this concept about trust because you've used it a couple of times. So is it your hypothesis that trust is built out of the stories we tell, the personal exposures we give? Absolutely true, 100%. And when there's a lack of trust, as there often is, based on uh, employees or whoever the audience is, past experience with, with the leadership or the government, when that trust is eroded, one way to win that trust back is through the artful and authentic, not just artful, telling of story in which the teller is revealing something personal, powerful, and universal about themselves that the listener can relate to and apply to their life. So yes, storytelling is a vehicle or a catalyst to upgrade trust, for sure. Okay. Um. I do, it's several people know I do a lot of work around the diversity agenda. And one of the things I note that makes a 
powerful difference when you're working with people who are not the same as you, however you want to define that. They just come from a different background, different experience, different belief system, whatever it is, different gender for that matter, that when we can start to hear each other's stories, when I can begin to hear your experience as another, it's when I begin to relate to you and it's when I can begin to bring you in to a more inclusive culture. So that's my experience. Do you find the same, Mitch? I do. Uh, And I'll tell you in a moment uh, uh, a diversity experience I had in Australia at an Islamic school that bears this out a thousand percent. Diversity on the surface is a word that's used to describe our differences. And it could be our skin color, our religion, our nationality, our language, our culture, and so forth. Most people notice what's different about the other. And that often creates separation, uh, anxiety, judgment, projection, and as we said earlier, a lack of trust. You're not me. You are the other. And I need to be nervous about you. I'm threatened by you in some way. However, when stories enter the picture, stories carry with it the DNA, the psychological human DNA of what all people share in common. There's an essence, no matter whether you're born in Africa or India or New Jersey, or whether you're a Muslim, a Buddhist, or a Christian or a Jew, there is something about the stories that people from those cultures will tell each other that will invoke and evoke a sense of oneness, community, and wholeness. And then people start to look at what we have in common instead of what separates us. So, yes, story is a way to navigate through this paradox called diversity. Yeah. One of my colleagues um, has done a lot of work with union and management and resolving union management differences. And one of the things that he does particularly skillfully, he and his group do particularly skillfully, is getting management to hear the stories of how union is experiencing life and vice versa. And it's that being able to listen to and hear each other's stories that start to break down some barriers and lead to some productivity in um, negotiations. But let's get this out of the theoretical, Mitch, and get it into reality. So tell me a story about how stories have been used to transform an organization or the workplace. I'm going to give you two stories or two examples. Uh, Stop me if I go on too long. The first one is um, a conglomerate of roofing companies in America that has their annual conference in Costa Rica. And uh, the CEO called me. I had worked with him maybe 15 years ago. And he basically said, uh, he was confessing, you know, their conferences, by his assessment, were boring, ho-hum, and all the money they spent flying hundreds of people to a fancy resort, they weren't getting any results. He said, we got to do something different. What do you suggest? Oh, and by the way, the theme of his conference was service, as in they wanted to become the Mercedes of service in their industry. So 
what they did classically was, you know, the CEO, the CFO, the CIO, and the head of training and development, everybody with a three-letter acronym after the name gets up on stage, makes their little pitch, shows their little slides. People in the audience pretend to be good students, nod their heads, nothing changes. So I said, look, Rich, you know that's bogus. It's not working. You don't want to do it again. Let's lead with story. He said, well, what would that look like? I said, let's find nine people in your organization, and they can be at any level of the organization. They don't have to be superheroes who interface with the customer, with the client, and they have a real story from their real life on the job in which the experience of extraordinary service manifested, that they provided a service. They had a moment, a breakthrough moment with a client or a customer where service was full bore. And let's get these folks to tell stories at the conference about their experience. We'll use that as a springboard. He said, fine, but oh, by the way, Mitch, you know, we're not really good storytellers. And I'm concerned that we're going to get, you know, some average, uh, you know, didactic up on stage with not much impact. I said, not a problem. Give me the names of the nine people. I will coach them for three months on the phone before I get there such that they're ready for prime time, which is what happened. They, I, help, I helped them identify the story, find the seed of this story, understand how to tell a story. They spoke the story into their voice memo app on their iPhone or whatever, sent it to me. I got to listen to it and give them feedback. They wrote the story, sent it to me. I read it and gave them feedback. And by the time we got to the conference, three times a day, three different people got up there and spoke their story of what extraordinary service looks like to them and and is, not just theoretically, but practically. And that became the springboard to ignite dialogue, conversation, questions, and other people remembering what they have done towards that end. So it was story that was the the jack-in-the-box. It was story that broke the piñata, not the senior leader giving a pep talk with memes, slogans, and platitudes. So that's one example. Um, that sounds great. Anything about that before I give you the second? Yeah, I'm interested in um, in the fact that you spent so much time helping them learn to tell the story. Because I do find that, you know, I can rehearse with people. I can say in advance, all right, so tell me the story so I know the questions to ask. And then somehow in the moment, they just don't ante up anything that has <laughs> any substance to it, you know? so. Yeah. No. So what's the secret to getting people to tell this in a way that's compelling? Practice. Practice is the secret. And seven of the nine of them practiced, and seven of the nine of them, nine of them did quite well. Two of them didn't, and they were average at best, and they knew it. And after, after the, their time up, they came up with great uh, you know, remorse and, and apologized I had to walk them off the, uh, you know, walk them off the ledge. It's okay. This is your first time. Don't worry about it. But practice is key, and getting feedback in your practice is key. So you actually practice telling the story to some people, and they mm-hmm. respond. Um, okay. So I was one of those people, and their wife, or their husband, or their kids, or some of their coworkers. So practice to cut to the chase is probably the simplest and most direct way to get better. Just like anything. And this- you know, is that because people get comfortable with telling it? Is it that they start to show more of the genuine emotion in the telling of it? Is it, I mean, yeah. what is it about that, the practice? And, yeah. Yeah. and it moves from being a speech, which is a memorized rap, 
which carries no authenticity and feeling because people in the audience can tell in, in five seconds if you are reciting something you memorized like you did in second grade. So the act of practicing moves a person away from the, from the compulsion or the addiction to memorizing and gets them comfortable. They understand the arc of the story. They understand the three main points. They understand how to start it, which is where a lot of people get tangled up, and they know how to end it which is also where a lot of people got tangled up. They just drift without a clear ending. So I gave them these guidelines, and most of them actually abided by them, and the storytelling actually turned out to be pretty good. Fabulous. All right. So this is an annual conference where we're trying to instill service, the Mercedes Benz of service in their industry. And we're going to use stories of nine people in the organization interfacing with a real client and how they had extraordinary service and a creative breakthrough. And people practice that and got feedback on it and practice again and got more feedback and learned to tell the story in a real emotional way. And that ignites discussion and excitement and all sorts of things I can well imagine after that. All right, so that's one example. What's the second? Well, I just want to add one more thing to that to get to the second. I played a a mediating role. I stood off to the side of the storyteller, and when the storyteller was done, because most storytellers, especially amateur storytellers, are not necessarily skillful at um, engaging the audience in a debrief of their story. where you actually ask people like, so what was that for you? What was the high point? What did you learn? How do you apply it? So I played that part. I played the kind of mediator uh, bridge between the storytelling and the audience. And that was the next factor that actually helped it uh, be even more powerful than it was without me. So that was, that's one example. The second one, which I'm in the midst of, I mean, not at this moment, I'm talking to you, but it's a very live client. It's an Islamic school outside of Melbourne, Australia. 960 students from first grade to 12th grade and 120 teachers and staff that are going through, by the client's own say-so, a very big change process. They are attempting to become a model for Islamic education in the West, and they recognize there's a gap between the, the vision the fantasy of how good it can be and where they are right now. So the the leader, who's the co-founder of the school, had stepped back from day-to-day engagement with everyone to do more of the strategic planning and the building of the facility and so forth, and he had hired a a principal to actually be the day-to-day operational guy. That time passed, and he wanted to come back into the mix, but no one knew him. He was... uh, kind of a a myth, even though people recognized his name, they weren't engaged with him, some of them didn't trust him, and uh, he knew that he had to establish a relationship with people quickly, and he also had to deliver a message about where they were going that was going to stick and move people. And he looked at me, and he he knows that I'm into storytelling, and he said, how can we do this with storytelling? So we had begun a multi-pronged approach to do that, one of which is I'm just coaching him in the art and science of telling stories. He begins his morning briefings, which are seven minutes long to a staff of 120 people with a story. And I feed him that story. He gives me the theme. I find the story, whether it's one I already know or I I find one that's appropriate to that moment. Uh, I write it up. 
I email it to him, he studies it, and he tells it. So it's like very real time for him. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, the, the Islamic scholar who teaches from the Quran is using this storytelling theme to find more and more stories from the Quran that can be used in a school setting to move the students forward. And the, the other piece of it is uh, some of the teachers have read my book and they are applying the principles in the, in the field guide part of the book or the technique section to get students to write and tell their stories. So that's another piece. And then I've initiated something called wisdom circles there, which are small groups of teachers, uh, maybe 8 to 12, meeting for an hour and a half after school or early in the evening to share their stories with each other outside of the specifics of the school about their life, about their past, about their their experiences, and all of that multifaceted diamond, if, if I can use that metaphor, to help them navigate their way forward towards their very high goal of becoming a model for Islamic education in the West, using storytelling as one of the enablers of that process. Right, and so what are you seeing as a result of this? So we have a founder who's reestablishing a sense of who he is and trust by doing a morning story. We have scholars using stories from the Quran. We have teachers trying to use stories in the, what they're teaching the schools. And you have these wisdom circles going on with teachers telling their personal life stories. What's the net impact on, the, on school? The net impact is an increase in alignment, in trust, in community, and enjoying each other's company. There is a, uh, just like in any culture, any company, there's a tendency that some people have to hide behind a persona or a title or other people's projections of them. And in the telling of stories, that dissolves gradually and sometimes even more than gradually. So an increased sense of community, an increased sense of trust, an increased, increased sense of knowing who your colleagues are and seeking them out in informal moments because now that they've revealed something about themselves, you feel closer to them or less threatened by them. Uh, and an increase in what I would call creative expression because the art of, of crafting and telling a story is an act of creativity. And uh, some schools squish creativity. Storytelling is a way to activate creativity. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Um, you know, it's a, I have a way of imagining being able to do this in a school setting. I can imagine doing this at a conference. Now, what about trying to do this storytelling in a group, a business, a division, when we're all pressed for time every second of every day? Does it still have the same impact? It can. It all depends on the mindset and commitment of the people that are attempting to initiate this. Uh, some companies actually have doubled down on this topic, and they will come right out and say, we are attempting to create a culture of storytelling. I'm working with a, an organization right now in the Midwest. That's their language. We're trying to establish a culture of storytelling where it's normal, it's not odd, it's not seen as a distraction or, or uh, trivial, but it's actually part of the way in which we 
communicate to each other. So how do you get started? I think that's the question. Yeah. Well, I would start uh, with whoever's listening to this <laughs> to ask themselves and the people around them why, why it matters. Why should we? What's the value to us? Unless the proverbial why is answered, unless that, that cat is belled, uh, everything else is going to seem like a, a sludge. So first, build your own case for the value of it. And if you have built the case for the value of it, then you want to engage other people. And that means the so-called rank and file, or in the case of the school, the teachers. So we actually polled them. We wanted to find out what about storytelling is intriguing to you. What do you find valuable? Why would you want to spend time in a workshop or entering it into your curriculum? Or if you're a, a manager or a business leader, why would you bring it into a staff meeting? So you've got to democratize or spread out the ownership of this. Otherwise, it will be perceived as yet another flavor of the month or the week. Last year, it was innovation. The year before that, it was teamwork. And the year before that, it was vision. And now it's storytelling, ho-hum. So you want to engage people into the why, and then you've got to model it. So whoever is attempting to bring this to bear in their organization or their school, they have to walk the talk, means they have to be willing to tell stories in formal and informal moments. So they're modeling the behavior. And of course, to do that, they've got to get clear about why am I telling this story? What is the message I'm conveying? Instead of just wrote, you know, going off road and, and, and being a motor mouth, what is my message? What, what do I want to leave people with? What is the theme? What is the moral of the story, so to speak? So to speak? And I would ask anyone interested in bringing more storytelling to bear to just make a list of the stories they already tell, their go-to stories that they love, that they're conf- confident about and comfortable telling. And see if you can extract the theme or the message of that story. So that's your go-to starter list, and you can tell those in multiple situations. And then I would make a second list of themes or messages that you have no story for, but you would like to have one. And then start asking people if they know of a story that illustrates that particular message, or if not, Good old Google. Type in stories on courage, stories on perseverance, stories on faith, whatever. And you'll find that there'll be many to choose from and you can make it your own. So those are a few. Um, I would also look for the naturals, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in the spirit of appreciative inquiry. I would look for the people in your organization who you know are already good and confident and effective storytellers. And I would look to provide platforms or forums for them to do their thing so they are modeling the storytelling behavior, not just you as the so-called uh, instigator of this. And um, there are trainings, there are workshops. Uh, I deliver some. There are keynotes. There are TED videos. There are all kinds of videos with brilliant storytellers, including Garrison Keillor and many unknown people who basically deconstruct what they do and how they do it uh, in 15 minutes or less. So anyone who's intrigued about how to start, there's like a wealth of how-to online. Um, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, okay. I will also consider, uh, certainly I would invite people to read 
uh, both of my books, one called Storytelling at Work, which is about the art and science of storytelling in the workplace, and um, my forthcoming book called Storytelling for the Revolution, which is Storytelling Anywhere and Everywhere. Okay. All right. And Mitch, you have some lovely blogs, I should mention again, that are on your website. Um, so MitchDitkoff.com or IdeaChampions.com. I'll remind people again that Mitch is a prolific blogger, on, at least in the Huffington Post and a variety of other places, and named as a really fabulous blogger. Um, some I follow, so I can attest to that one as well. So you'll find lots of tools and tips and hints in those, as well as in the book, um, Storytelling at Work and Storytelling for the Revolution. Uh, Wanda, do you want to add one thing here? Because yeah, you please. mentioned the... the uh the phenomenon or the perception of lack of time. And that mm-hmm. would be one reason why people would um, have resistance to paying attention to the power of storytelling because it seems to take time. Here's an interesting little factoid. Canadian researchers have discovered that the attention span of a human being these days is eight seconds and the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. (laughs) In other words, goldfish can pay attention longer than we can. So the the distractibility, the lack of attentiveness, the lack of attention, the lack of focus is is an epidemic everywhere. You, You see it in music, you see it in movie, the quick cuts, you see it in TV, you see it in the way people's eyes dart around when you're talking to them, but they're not even looking at you because we are so distracted. So the question that I ask myself is, given this distractibility, given this fading, you know, flaccid muscle of attention that seems to be getting flabbier as the years roll by, how can I increase the odds of the people in my life who I care about, who I serve, and who I love actually paying attention and listening to whatever message or communication I think is valuable to share. And what I've discovered, as many have, it's that story is the most efficient, effective, simplest, most universal way to accomplish that. And for those who go, oh, we don't have much time, hey, a story can take 45 seconds. A joke, which is a very short story, can be told in 15 seconds. And it carries, guess what, a punchline, a moral, the aha, the wow, the breakthrough, the insight, the pause, the get out of your trance and consider this moment. So that's how powerful stories are, but they don't need to take a lot of time. You're not writing a 300-page, 350-page book when you tell a story. You can do it in a minute. Simple. Okay. All right. We clearly waste more than a few minutes every day, so a story wouldn't take all that much time. However, it takes time for me to prep and think about it. I can't just show up and go, oh, my gosh, uh, let me tell you a story and think that it's going to have some meaning and impact. And it's the prep I think we don't do enough of. We don't. Well, that is uh, related to the fact that we don't do much reflection or contemplation. Or, you know, if you want to get, you know, a little bit more out there, meditation, the act of pausing 
and slowing down and letting go and just kind of doing nothing for a moment and just considering or the more business-like uh, term for that is debriefing or a post-mortem. What did we learn from that failure? Or what did we learn from that success? Or what did we learn from this project? So many teams and so many companies are so compelled to just keep cranking. They don't even pause long enough to consider what they learned so they could apply those learnings to their next project. So in that mindset of we're all late for a very important date, it's not surprising that some people think to take a few minutes to discover or think about or prep or craft a story is time we don't have. But when you consider the power of what you can accomplish, if you take just five minutes or eight minutes to do it, and what result could emerge from the telling of a of a, of a meaningful story at the right time to the right group of people, suddenly eight minutes is not a lot of time. Okay. Well, and if you go back to where you started with this one, that the story is the memorable part. The story carries the connection. The story is what builds the trust. The story is what's going to get people excited and engaged. It's, you know, so, okay, let's say I spend half an hour preparing the story that I want to tell, and I spend two minutes telling that story. The net result, though, it can be powerful impact on the people that I'm trying to lead. Let let, let me explain yes to that, a thousand percent. I'm going to give you one other uh, uh, meaningful uh, result. (laughs) When stories are told well in an organization uh, and are remembered, they become a secret language or a code, a shorthand to talk about a principle that um, needs to be reinforced from time to time. So when you tell the story and people get it and they nod, they go, yeah, the so-and-so story, the, the 18th camel story, which I, I told a few times uh, in this Islamic school in Australia to different groups, everyone gets it. Then the next time I meet with them, I don't have to tell them the story. All I have to say is, do you remember the 18th camel? And at that moment, heads nod, eyes open up, people look forward, lean forward. They start smiling because just by naming the story that I told a week before or a month before, they have now built into their memory banks the place that remembers the principle, the message, and the moral of that story, which, you know, that story carries the message of there's always an elegant solution that may not be obvious. I don't have to go and repeat myself. I just have to say the 18th camel. So stories become code for delivering and reinforcing and activating deep principles that uh, either make or break an organization. It strikes me that as if I'm a leader that is trying to change behavior in an organization, um, whether it's create greater service or create greater collaboration or whatever it is that I'm trying to do, that the more powerful stories I can tell that become memorable and become a bit of the lore of the company is the fastest way of illustrating what it is I want people to do, faster than measuring it or sanctioning it or incentivizing it or any other variations on that theme. 
you, you bring up a great example. And the classic version of what you just said is really the roots of Apple. You, you go back to the early days and you've got that, you know, that, that, that totally memorable story of Steve Jobs and Wozniak engineers at Hewlett-Packard, they brought the idea for the graphical interface computer to their boss. The boss looked at them like they were completely hallucinating. He said, get back to work. They quit. They went into Steve Jobs' garage, and they, they put together the first working Mac, and the rest is history. That story, that entrepreneurial startup story, is still told, as well as the story of the pirate flag flown over Apple headquarters, which I think now is the 40th anniversary of their of their origins, and somebody found a way to recreate that pirate flag and flew it over the Apple headquarters, and all the old-timers who were there in the beginning with Jobs remembered that because they needed to distinguish themselves from IBM, and so they were the pirates. They were sailing the seas. They were radical. They were revolutionary. They were irreverent, and the flag became the symbol, and the story of the flag, when retold, to millennials or the newbies in the organization brings up that feeling of that raw power of like, we can do anything. So that's how powerful those early stories are. I've often thought that um, the way to integrate a new member into the team, you know, hasn't been around for a while and everybody knows each other, is to have everybody on the team tell a story. What's your favorite story about what happened on this team? What's this team about? What? You know, and suddenly you find that you're embraced in this team and you know the references that get passed around the table in discussions just simply because people brought you up to speed with stories, with history. I love it. I love it. And, and that's, by the way, how civilizations continue is via the telling of stories. That's how all civilizations pass on their wisdom and their, their essence is around the fire, go way back. It was the telling of the story at the end of the day. And they were oral. They were not written. You couldn't Google them. They were just spoken. But they continued from generation to generation. That's interesting. That's interesting. My original research, Mitch, you may not remember, is around oral traditions and the telling of stories, Mm -hmm. how that works and why it works and why we remember them and a whole bunch of other things wrapped around it as well. So, Mitch, we've got got four minutes before we're going to close. And I can't resist the challenge of asking you to take those four minutes to tell us a story. Okay, I'm going to tell the story of the 18th camel that I referred to earlier. Once upon a time in Egypt, maybe 50 years ago, there was a very masterful merchant of camels. His profession for decades had been buying and selling camels. His name was Hamid. He was loved. He was generous. He was kind. He was intelligent. He was spiritual. One day, coming back from a buying mission, he has a massive heart attack, falls off his camel, hits the ground. It's, it's all over for Hamid. Word gets out that he's died and everyone is sad, everyone is moping and wailing, and a gigantic funeral gets put together in his honor, bigger than even any of the funerals for the pharaohs. Thousands of people came, the finest of wines and music and priests from every denomination, tents everywhere, Days of celebration and honor. At the end of the funeral, the end of all of the, all of the orchestrated events, there's the ritual reading of the will. And the Grand Vizier reads the will. The three sons are there waiting to see what they got from their famous and very illustrious and very wealthy dad. And the primo uh, inheritance that they had 
been given was his prize 17 camels. These were the finest camels in, in all of the land. And so they were thrilled, but you can't divide uh, 17 camels among three boys. And the instructions were very clear. Half of the camels go to the eldest son, one-third goes to the middle son, and one-ninth goes to the youngest son. So they argued, they fought, they pushed, they shoved, they wrestled, and finally they sent word to the wise men. We need help. Help us figure this out. He comes, he listens, each making a case for their point of view of why they should get X amount of camels and how that would solve the problem. He listens, he says, boys, I'll be back in an hour. He leaves. They don't understand why he's left, but he's wise, so he must be doing something right. An hour later, they look in the distance. They see a very slow-moving man on a camel riding across the desert. Uh, The heat, the mirage-like thing, it's almost like he's coming from a dream. He finally gets to them. He gets off the camel, and he says, okay, boys, here's the deal. I loved your father so much. What I'm going to do is I'm going to donate my camel to you. You You now have 18 camels. So, eldest son, you get half. That's nine. Middle son, you get a third, that's six. Youngest son, you get a ninth, that's two. Nine plus six plus two is 17. There he is, 17 camels. Oh, we have one camel left over. I guess I'll just get back on the camel and and go home. And he does. (laughs) What a fabulous story. (laughs) So I, I I can wax poetic about why people need to get out of the box and think of non obvious solutions and challenge the status quo and don't settle for the first right idea until the cows come home. But when I tell the 18th camel story, they, their eyes open up. They get it. Then it's a segue for me saying to them, the rest of the day, folks, or maybe the rest of your life, it's all about us finding that 18th camel solution. It's possible. It's not obvious quite yet. But with some rigor, with some focus, with some attention, with some playfulness, with some experimenting, we'll get there. So you message. see in, in, in a very short amount of time, you deliver a very powerful message. I can see it. The 18th camel, elegant solution, a different way of looking at it. Mitch, what a fabulous, powerful story. If I just take the essence of all of this, I'm going to say that you have argued that stories, and I believe, are our connections to each other, our bridge. It's where we build trust. It conveys the essence of some abstract concepts like courage or, for that matter, our mission or our vision or our purpose even. It makes us less of an other and brings us together and shares our commonality. It's part of what we remember, and it's a shorthand for conveying the messages we really want to convey and the behaviors we really want to say. Say. All right, Mitch Ditkoff is my guest. The book, Storytelling for the Revolution, or the one before that, Storytelling at Work. Mitch, it's been fabulous to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. I really appreciate it. With pleasure. And join us next week for yet another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.